This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Flame Skull Lots of things in our favorite fantasy games, movies, and stories come from something. That is to say, very few of the things in modern geekdom are actually just invented whole cloth by game designers, filmmakers, authors, or comic artists. That's a good thing, because if the creators of our favorite bits of pop culture were creative and original, we here at the Word of the Week would have nothing to talk about. But every so often, as we troll through our favorite role-playing game books looking for something, anything, we haven't talked about yet, because we're on a deadline and the producer needs that script, every so often, we find something that defies any explanation at all. Something that, as far as we can tell, just popped fully formed from the mind of some creator suddenly and inexplicably. And that drives us crazy. Because we were convinced that we were going to get a good script out of it. And now, as time continues to slide irrevocably into the past and our producer keeps impatiently tapping his watch, we're really in trouble. Take, for example, the Flame Skull. This is a neat little monster we've always sort of liked that we were reminded of recently as we were organizing our miniature collection. It's a pretty innocuous little thing, just a floating skull wreathed in supernatural green flame. Basically a spooky, haunted paperweight, really. Except that flame skulls, at least according to the Dungeons & Dragons lore, are created from the skulls of dead spellcasters and they retain the spellcaster's magical abilities. So rather than just being some buoyant, chattery skull with a showy pyrotechnics display to spice up a wizard's tomb, they're buoyant, chattery skulls with showy pyrotechnics and the magical equivalent of laser eyes. That's pretty dang cool, as tomb-guarding knickknacks go. And we were convinced, nay, we were desperately hoping that there was a cool myth or legend to go along with all of that. But guess what? There isn't. At least not that we could find. The monsters don't even go back to the first edition of Dungeons & Dragons. The first mention we could find of them is, interestingly, in something we actually happen to own. Something pretty memorable, actually. It is the first issue of Dragon Magazine we had delivered to our home. We finally convinced our parents, at the age of 15, to let us subscribe to both ongoing gaming publications of the day, Dragon and Dungeon Magazine, at the start of the school year in 1993. And when we received Dragon Issue 197 in September of that year, we got to be among the first gamers ever to glimpse the Flame Skull because that's where it first appeared in D&D. The Flame Skull was one of four creatures that appeared in that issue in a semi-regular feature devoted to introducing new and original monsters to D&D fans called the Dragon's Bestiary. And this particular instance was written by the creator of the Forgotten Realms and gamer extraordinaire, Ed Greenwood. And we talked about his history way back in our episode about the cosmos. Interestingly, the theme that connected the four monsters in that column, the Banalar, the Whipsting, the Foulwing, and the Flame Skull, was that they were all mysterious creatures that were only recently discovered, or rediscovered, 
and whose origins were shrouded in mystery. The flame skull, as described by Greenwood, was the result of ancient magical processes developed in the ancient magical empire of Netheril. Processes that were only remembered in the modern era of Forgotten Realms by a few mysterious magical groups, such as evil priests of Bane or evil wizards of Gentile Keep and Thay. And because the magic used to create them was a mystery, they were highly sought after by alchemists, priests, and wizards who wanted to replicate said magic. And the mystery surrounding the origin of these creatures was pretty apt. Because if Greenwood was inspired by some ancient mythical creature or legend, we haven't been able to turn it up. That being said, the idea of an undead creature that is essentially just a disembodied skull isn't that original. The skull, as a symbolic theme, has been utilized throughout human history. And for pretty obvious reasons, those themes usually involve death. And while these days we view any reminder of death as dreadful and depressing, the symbolism of skulls and deaths in human antiquity is actually a bit more complicated and nuanced. Let's talk about Memento Mori. Memento Mori these days is remembered as a Christian practice dating back to the medieval period. And the most common examples of the Memento Mori practice are visible in old Christian cemeteries, especially Spanish cemeteries. They take the form of skulls and sometimes bones that are either inscribed into headstones, mausolea, or sarcophagi, or else hung over the gate of the said cemetery, like little macabre decorative flourishes. But here's the thing, although people in the know call those depictions memento mori, they aren't actually memento mori, because memento mori is actually a philosophy. The skulls and bones and various other depictions are reminders of the philosophy. See, memento mori is a Latin phrase. It means remember that you too are mortal. Basically, it's a reminder that you and me and everyone, we're all going to die someday. Just like the people in the tombs and crypts and cemeteries. And that probably sounds pretty grim, but it was believed by the medieval Christian church to be an important reminder of what's really important. Mortality and the material world were both fleeting. So material pursuits and mortal temptations were just as fleeting. But the soul that would be reborn into the kingdom of God and live forever, if, you know, it was a good soul, remember, you are mortal and this world is only temporary, those leering skulls said. Don't wreck your shot at the hereafter with debauchery and vice and sin. But that's not the only message that Memento Mori carried. Obviously, they served as a warning, but they also offered some comfort. Some scholars note that especially in the early and middle medieval period, death was kind of at the forefront of everyone's mind, because it was a violent, deadly, and dangerous time to be alive. And so a reminder that the world you lived in was a temporary state and that suffering and pain would eventually end and be replaced with peace in the hereafter, that was a positive message. And the thing is that memento mori, 
that doesn't just refer to skull decorations in cemeteries. It was an entire art movement which was fixated on the depiction of mortal remains, most especially skulls and skeletons. One of the most famous pieces of Memento Mori art is a Vincent van Gogh painting called Skull of a Skeleton with a Burning Cigarette. And it depicts exactly what it says it depicts. And it was painted by Van Gogh while he was studying at the Royal Academy of Fine Arts and suffering through health problems, some of which were the result of his own heavy smoking, a habit he never shook. Of course, that's an example of a memento mori from the late 1800s. That's when Van Gogh did his thing. And Pablo Picasso also famously got into the memento mori thing. But there were older examples of memento mori art as well. For example, there was this related tradition that maybe you've heard of called the Dance Macabre, or Dance of Death. These are bits of art that depict the mortal remains of people, usually skeletons, dancing around in celebration and revelry. Many of them show groups of skeletons with various accoutrements, showing their stations in life dancing together. The theme is clear. Whoever you are in life, and whatever your station, in death... We're all united. The earliest example of dance macabre art comes from a mural on a charnel house at the Parisian Cemetery of Holy Innocence, and it was created in the 15th century. By the way, a charnel house is a vault, usually on cemetery ground, where assorted human bones are stored. Usually these are bones that get unearthed when digging graves and they are similar in that respect to ossuaries, where bones are moved once the tombs and crypts, mausoleums, and catacombs get too full, and some new vacancies are needed. And many charnel houses and ossuaries are decorated with objects made out of assorted bones, especially skulls. Things like chandeliers and braziers and stuff. Dance macabre variations of memento mori art became especially widespread while a third of Europe was dying of the Black Plague in the 14th and 15th centuries. And you could even call the children's song Ring Around the Rosy, or Ring a Ring of Roses, as it was called, a sort of memento mori or dance macabre itself. At least that's one theory, because the actual origin of the song is completely forgotten. It was first written down in 1855 in a novel by Anne S. Stevens, and it was being sung by a group of children who were housed at a hospital compound in New York. Anyway, the theory is that the ring of roses and all the posies represented flowers on graves, and that the ashes, ashes we all fall down bit was a reference to the biblical ashes to ashes, dust to dust reminder that our mortal bodies came from earth and will return to the earth. And when the kids fall down at the end of the song, it's because the plague killed them. If not the Black Plague, some folks say it's a reference to a later outbreak of the bubonic plague that occurred in England in 1665 and was called the Great Plague. Others speculate the song is actually derived from an old pagan ritual. No one really knows for sure. Gosh, what a fun song for children to sing. And as for the Memento Mori tradition itself, well, supposedly that also goes back to well before the Christian church got a hold of it and turned it into grim art. Some theorize it goes back to the days of ancient Rome or even ancient Greece. 
They point to examples in the works of various Greek philosophers like Plato, where the reader is admonished to consider their own mortality as an important part of the human experience and the meaning of life. And the writings of Stoic philosophers were particularly loaded with this kind of message. Now, Stoicism was a philosophical movement of the classical Hellenic age that was centered on the idea that emotions were for lesser minds. That things like fear are a sort of mind-killer, and it would totally obliterate you. Okay, not quite. Forgive us the quote. Stoics believed that emotional responses were either the cause of, or caused by, faulty reasoning. Stoicism was centered on the idea that those who had achieved a high degree of intellectual and moral perfection wouldn't suffer from emotions, and they wouldn't need them, and they wouldn't miss them. Suffering, they said, was just a state of mind. If you can't feel suffering, you can handle any misfortune. And happiness is an illusion. A moral and reasonable person is content being moral and reasonable. No happiness needed. So you can probably see how the reminder that everything in the material world is fleeting and transient and unimportant might underlie a lot of their work. Not only that, but there was also, supposedly, this Roman tradition of making sure that their generals didn't get too uppity. And this leads back to a tradition called the Triumph. See, under the Roman Republic, military officers were not allowed to enter the city of Rome. And we mean Roman military officers. Roman generals couldn't enter the city of Rome. And if they did enter the city, they stopped being generals at the gates and became generals again once they left. Except successful Roman generals that met a particular set of conditions that included having annexed new land for the Republic could request permission to enter the city of Rome under triumph. They'd have to stand outside the gate and ask the Senate to meet them, and they'd recount their achievements, and the Senate would confer and say, okay, you can come into the city as a general under triumph and the general would march into the city with a grand procession and carts with murals mounted on them depicting their achievements, and it'd be a big party and a feast, and they could stay in the city for a night as a general. And then get the heck back out. That's the short version. Anyway, according to one Roman author, there was this tradition that came along as part of the triumph. The triumphant general would march in their procession and the crowd would cheer and everything would be awesome. But just behind them would be a dude walking and holding a crown just above his head and whispering, You're still going to die someday and everything you've done won't matter after that. Memento Mori don't let all of this go to your head. But whether or not that actually happened, well, records are sketchy. It's just another one of those origins lost to the ages. While we're on the subject of skulls and memento mori, we also have to mention pirate flags and poison bottles and secret societies. 
because you can't think of skulls and symbols of death without thinking of the skull and crossbones. And you can probably guess that those skull and bone markers on graves and above cemetery gates were the first skull and crossbone symbols. So how the heck did a Stoic-slash-Roman-slash-Christian reminder not to put too much stock in the material world turn into a symbol of death and piracy? Well, here's the funny thing. We're not sure. We have theories, but there's some holes. The story probably starts with the poor fellow soldiers of Christ in the Temple of Solomon, the Knights Templar. We've talked about them before, frequently. As a refresher, they were a charitable order of Christian knights who protected travelers during the era of the Crusades who wanted to visit the Holy Land of Jerusalem. And they also established banks so they could help travelers protect their stuff while they traveled. And eventually, the order ran afoul of French politics and was disbanded, and the remaining members became mariners in the Mediterranean Sea. Well, it seems, according to some stories, that the order used as one of their symbols a skull above a pair of crossed femurs, leg bones. Specifically, the skull and femur bones of Jacques de Molay, the 23rd and final Grand Master of the Knights. He was the one who was burned alive when King Philip of France convinced Pope Clement to disband the order so he, the king, could seize all the knights' lands and money. The legend goes that when the faithful followers of de Molay came to retrieve his remains, all they found was his skull and his femurs, which they took as their new symbol. Now, there is another story about the skull and crossbones as a symbol of the Templars. It's the story of a particular knight, the Lord of Sidon. His wife died when she was young and left him without a son. He was so overcome with grief that he dug up her body after she was buried. And when he did, a mysterious voice told him to go away and come back in nine months whereupon he'd find his son. Because he was the sort of guy who would dig up his girlfriend's corpse, he listened to the strange grave voice. And when he returned nine months later, he found a small human skull resting on his wife's crossed fingers. Whatever story you prefer, the remnants of the Knights Templar who sailed the Mediterranean as mercenaries and freebooters did use the skull and crossbones as one of their symbols. And the Port of Sidon has traditionally been a den of piracy. So, open and shut case then, right? That's why the skull and crossbones is a pirate symbol. Well, not. This is where things get shrouded in mystery, because... The symbol of the skull and crossbones disappeared from history for a while. It didn't actually start to get used by pirates until hundreds of years later in the late 1600s, during the so-called Golden Age of Piracy. During that period, it was common for pirates to fly a plain red flag to represent bloodshed. But then a couple of pirates, notably Black Sam Bellamy and Edward England, suddenly started flying the so-called Jolly Roger a red or black flag depicting a skull and crossed leg bones. And there's no real good historical evidence for how and why they chose that symbol, though it's 
possible it was used by small pirate groups following the Templars' footsteps all that time. And you know what else there isn't any good evidence for? Why the heck it's called the Jolly Roger? That name seems to have just suddenly appeared in Charles Johnson's book, A General History of the Pirates, which was first published in 1724. The term Jolly Roger did exist before that, but it was used to refer to a jovial and carefree person. Look at that guy, whistling as he walks down the street without a care in the world. What a Jolly Roger he is! Aside from that, Old Roger was an old nickname for the devil. But how either of those things became the nickname for a pirate flag is anyone's guess. It's just another one of those mysteries of history. And speaking of mysteries, let's get back to the flame skull that we started with. Because while there isn't any good myth or legend or historical reason for Greenwood to invent an undead flying skull monster, at least the idea of an undead skull makes sense. But why is it on fire? And why green fire? Well, we can't explain that either. But we do have to confess it reminds us of a particular convention in video games. Have you ever noticed that ghosts in video games are depicted either as floating blue flames or else surrounded by wisps of blue flame? We noticed it recently in The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. All of the ghosts of Link and Zelda's former allies who were killed by Ganon a century before, they all have these eerie blue floating flames around them. But we also remember them from other Zelda games. If you bottle up one of the ghostly undead Poe's in Ocarina of Time, they take the form of blue flames inside the bottle. There's the undead candle Pokemon, Litwick, with its eerie blue flame. The ghost pirate in Paper Mario, the Thousand Year Door is surrounded by blue fire. Fantoon in Super Metroid. Floating blue flames in the haunted areas of Okami. The Pyrefly Spirits in Final Fantasy X. The blue flames drifting around in the first zone of Legend of the Mystical Ninja. The blue fires that drift through Hades in Kingdoms Heart 2. The list goes on and on. What is it about blue floating balls of fire in the undead? Well, if you pay attention, you might notice all of those games and many others have something in common. They were all designed by Japanese game studios and, unsurprisingly, they are references to a bit of Japanese folklore. They're called Hitodama, and they are said to be the disembodied souls of the dead. They tend to be pretty transient and fade quickly, but legend says you can sometimes spot them drifting through cemeteries, and they appear in Japanese legends and literature going back to ancient times. Different regions in Japan have different legends about the Hitodama. In some places they are called Tamase, and they supposedly appear two or three days after someone dies, drifting toward the person's loved ones, or toward temples and holy sites. In Okinawa, they have a different legend altogether. They call the blue flame thingies Tamagai, and believe they are spirits that herald the birth of children. But sometimes they also lure travelers to their death. The weird thing is that while the legends and stories of the Hitodama vary widely, 
It seems like every region in Japan has folklore about ghostly floating fires that drift around. And it's led to a lot of speculation as to just why that might be. Why are there so many different stories about ghost lights in Japan? Are there really floating balls of fire drifting around the place? A lot of historians have theories. Some blame tricks of the light or natural phenomena related to all the seismic and volcanic activity in Japan. Others suggest certain species of distinct firefly have given rise to the legends. Still others have pointed to chemical reactions that sometimes arise when combustible gases escape from human corpses and come into contact with the air or with moisture. Scientists have even managed to create artificial hitadama through such chemical reactions in laboratories. This is probably just another one of those things that we can only guess at. Just another mysterious, legendary creature whose origins will probably never really be known. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. 